0: Chapter two. Oh, I got to get it a lot louder.
1: Therefore, you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. The Jew first, and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. For all who have sinned without the law will also perish without the law. And all who have sinned under the law will be judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. For when Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires... They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. They show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day when, according to my gospel, God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on the law and boast in God and know his will and approve what is excellent, You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. For circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law. But if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law... Will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter." His praise is not from man, but from God.
0: Okay. It doesn't take a whole lot to figure out what this little study tonight is going to be about. (laughs) One word, judgment. And it is God's response to man's ways. Now, think about chapter 1 for just a second those three lessons that I shared with you. If anything, you remember, God turned them over. God turned them over. 22 sins. God (laughs) turned them over. The righteous character of God demands judgment upon unrighteousness. See, creation was created to be at peace with God, be at harmony, Judgment, then, must come upon the ungodly and disobedient, those who choose to live separate and apart from God. Likewise, a proper place and outcome has to be prepared for the ungodly and the unrighteous. Now, what's really important about this chapter is that what's often overlooked is that there are... Good night. Uh, there are certain principles and standards upon which God's judgment operates. God is a just God, and He is going to follow certain principles of judgment. So, I'm going to list these for you that are found right here in this chapter. Number one, God's judgment begins with the enlightened. He's referencing the Jew. This is verse 1. So one who judges another, he condemns himself. So he who looks down and condemns to condemnation, even to the point of the phrase, well, go to hell, as we've all heard once or twice in our life, then we are condemning that person. Judgment must remain in the hands of God. As we receive truth, we must judge ourselves rather than judging another. One is not justified by condemning a worse sinner. We all know bad behavior cannot be justified by other bad behavior. That's what you see in verse 3. So the enlightened faces greater condemnation if he fails to walk in the light that has been given. Now, here's the Jew, because that's who this is addressed to. The Jew thought himself exempt from God's judgment. Why was that? Well, I'm a child of Abraham. And he thought no child of Abraham would enter hell. So he stood to condemn the Gentile. But what does the passage say there in verse 1 and 2? Why, you practice the same things. We probably know some Christians just like that. I mean, they practice the sin of the Jew, which was sh- uh, which was sinning against the very light that has been given. And this brings judgment. Number two, God's judgment is based on Truth. So, verse 2, the judgment of God is according to truth. It's according to real reality. God is going to judge according to the way one receives truth. The more truth that is provided or given requires greater judgment if it's rejected. So, self-righteousness is really only imaginary. It is not reality. The receiving of truth brings the kindness and the forbearance of God. Which does what? It leads to repentance. Verse 4. I love Psalms 147 and verse 11. The Lord takes pleasure in them that fear Him, in those who hope in His mercy. So he who sins against the kindness of God, what happens? He stores up wrath, the wrath of God. You see that in verse 5? So, in my mind, my opinion, we talk about what's the worst of all sins. Well, that I may not know. But the darkest of sins is mercy despised. Isn't that not a closely associated with blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? You despi- That person despises the mercy of God. He keeps telling the Holy Spirit, no, not going to go down that road. So mercy is not receiving what we deserve. So when one refuses to repent, change their thinking, change their actions, confess and cast off their sins, what can He expect? The righteous judgment of God. It's not you or I judging them. It's the righteous judgment of God. Verse 5. Number 3. God's judgment will be according to works. That's verse 6. Works reveal The nature of man, his deeds, his actions, his behavior. We met this man in Romans chapter 1. The inexcusable man. The godly, they have perseverance in doing good. Verse 7. So they have patience and endurance and fortitude. They have steadfastness. They do what is good and what is right. Godliness exhibits in a person's life The perseverance and endurance and steadfastness. The godly seek for what? For glory, honor, and immortality. Verse 7. So, the godly walk in that now, and then they seek the splendor of heaven. Godliness seeks eternal splendor, honor, and immortality. Now, look at the results of a godly life in verse 7 and in verse 10. He speaks of eternal life. That's zoe enios, which means the very life of God. For those who have come out of death, the life of God awaits them. Splendor, brightness, radiance, peace, harmony, well-being, rest with God. The result of a godly life is eternal life. It's glory, it's honor, and peace as so stated there in verse 10. Now look at the judgment of ungodliness. So what is ungodliness? We saw this in the inexcusable man. It's the person who just wants to remove God from his life. They just assume there not even be a god. They'll even sometimes go so far to deny that there is a God. So by their conscience then, they don't have to be accountable to that God. They are what? Verse 8. They're selfishly ambitious. They're striving. They're contentious. They do not obey the truth. That's where we get the phrase, obey the gospel. They're in verse 8. They disbelieve. They disobey. They're disobedient. Disobedience and unbelief come from the same root word. They obey unrighteousness. Verse 8. So they're convinced. They're persuaded. They come to believe. They obey. They follow unrighteousness. Verse 8. The judgment of ungodliness. I want you to notice two very important Greek words concerning the wrath and the indignation of God. I say this and it's mentioned here and it's really not comfortable to talk about. That's likely why it's probably not preached very much at all. God has wrath. It's a part of the Gospel. He has anger. He has indignation. That's the word wrath originally, or J, O-R-G-E. It is stored up, and it waits for judgment. While the other word indignation is the word thumos, which is a passionate burst of anger, which God has displayed many times throughout the Old Testament. You know, the, uh, the golden calf comes to mind, Nadab and Abihu, that instant judgment comes to mind. That's the indignation of God. His passionate uh, wrath and anger uh, upon the Egyptian nation, upon Pharaoh. So, verse 9, tribulation and anguish, distress upon every... You see that? Every, Every soul of man that does evil. So we don't have to take uh, the curse, well you're just judging them. No, God says tribulation in anguish upon every soul of man that does evil. So tribulation of course is affliction, it's oppression. Distress is often brought upon by outward circumstances. The judgment under discussion will come upon every soul who does evil. Verse 9. In other words, upon every soul that works evil. That's not your judgment. That's God's judgment. Number 5. God's judgment will be without partiality. That's verse 11. In other words God's judgment is without favoritism it's without bias In this case God is not partial to the Jew see the Jew thought God would be partial to him because well he's the child of Abraham Look at verse 13 It's not the hearers of the law that are just before God it's the doers of the law that will be justified So, the Jew has the law. He will be judged by the law. Verse 12. The Jew will not escape judgment by merely being a hearer of the law. Verse 13. Can you think of an application of that today? How would that be expressed? Oh, I go to church. I mean, so often the person says, Oh, I go to church, or I'm a Christian. We're not condemning them for going to church. It's just that they rely upon church attendance to save them. They're a hearer. They go and hear a sermon or whatever and then, but they don't live it. The law was not a covering under which the Jew was to hide. It was an instrument of judgment for the lawbreaker. The Jew would be judged by the law. Now, God has not turned his face from the Gentiles. See, Jews have been under discussion up to here in verse 13 and 14. The principle here is to sin against the light of one's conscience. See, without the law, that likewise will bring judgment. Now, I want you to notice verse 15. All men have a law written in their hearts, whether they ever go to church whether they ever hear a Bible story. All men have a law written in their hearts. The conscience of man bears witness to good and to evil. So he says, the Gentiles, they're a law to themselves. Verse 14, God will judge the heart whether one has obeyed the understanding of his conscience or he has sinned against the light that he has been given. God will go out of his way, I believe, to reveal himself to the person that wants to hear from God. And if not through natural means, he will use supernatural means. And I personally have the belief that this accounts for the many manifestations that people have. You know, certain individuals say, I had a manifestation from God. Well, somebody else says, no, I didn't, so you didn't. No. I think it's God will go to any means to reach a person. He'll do a miracle for them if He has to. Now, they may not accept it. Verse 16. The next thing about God's judgment. God will judge the secrets of men. In other words, everything that is hidden will be uncovered. Everything that is concealed, everything that has been hidden, everything that someone is trying to keep from being seen or don't want others to find out about. So it's not the way of the sinner the way to deceive. It's to conceal truth. I mean, think back to Adam. God says, where are you? I'm hiding. See, God will not allow a man to sin against the truth. God's judgment will uncover all things that are hidden. So the truth of a man's life will come forth and then man has to face his deeds. He has to face himself. Truth will be an instrument of God's judgment. Now, let me give you a short summary here before we move on to 17. God's judgment begins with the enlightened. God's judgment does not begin with the unsaved or with the worst of sinners. God's judgment begins with how much light did somebody receive. God's judgment is based on truth. God's judgment is based on works. Is a man righteous or is he unrighteous? God's judgment will be without partiality. God's judgment does not reward the hearers, but the doers. And all men have a law written in their hearts. The next two elements of the judge, God's judgment will be seen in the following verses. God's judgment will be according to the light that has been given, which is Paul's gospel. That's what he gave to the churches, and according to the heart. So let me have a moment here to get over to those notes, and we'll continue on. I mean, I love Paul because he's such a master of logic. I mean, he he presents a legal, uh, like he is the master attorney, his arguments and the way in which he presents these things. Now, the way that we look at ourselves and an objective evaluation, well, I found that to be quite different. What we find in this section is the Jew's opinion of himself is presented along with the objective evaluation by God's Holy Spirit. The conclusion that we come to will be startling to the Jew who took refuge in the law. He took a refuge in his position as being privileged before god and then the text will actually attack his very identity that the jew claims through circumcision now let's find out why jews are condemned in this section here's their boast jews are boasting as a people, as a nation. Verses 17 and 18. They boast. They glory. They take pride in. The things that the Jew boasted in. These are called Jewish claims. We claim to be this. What Notice there, verse 17 and 18. They claim we've got the name. We're a Jew. They claim we've got the document. His law. To the Jew, the law is the embodiment of knowledge, of the truth. Verse 17 and verse 20. The Jew claimed we've got deity. We've got the one and only God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The Jew claimed he has knowledge. Verse 18. And he also says that he has specialized knowledge. And we're also privileged. We know His will, and we approve the things that are essential. Verse 18. So, now look at the Jew's view of Himself. This will be 19 through 29. These are the areas the Jew was confident of. He was convinced. He was persuaded. It's in the perfect tense, which indicates that the Jew was perfectly, thoroughly convinced of these things about himself, and there was no room for any doubt. His claim of leadership. Why, we're a guide to the blind. Why, we're a light to those in darkness. So the Jew claims, well, he's the light giver. He's also a corrector of the foolish. So the Jew is the educator. He is a teacher of the immature. So he looked at others, unknowing ones, well, you're infants. We have maturity, we're in the know. Their opinion of others with differing view is, well, when are you going to grow up and grow out of it? Those were without the law, Gentiles, how were they looked upon? Blind, darkness, foolish, and immature. Those who had the law, well, they were guides. They were lights, they were correctors of all others, and they were teachers. Now, gonna say something. The purpose of teaching is to make personal application. I mean, what good are God's promises if they don't apply or His Word to you and to me? You know the most difficult part about reading and studying the Bible for me, is personal application. That God is talking to me. And this was something that the Jew had a very difficult time doing. Well, this same spirit (coughs) permeates many denominations and church groups today. We're not bringing accusation. We're not trying to be hard. We're just saying, here is something that is alive. It's real. It's reality. This same spirit. Who are these? Well, they're narrow-minded, are the ones that I've met. I mean, I've met, and I know not a few, but hundreds, hundreds, if not thousands, who believe that they are the only ones who possess truth. I found them to be dogmatic, argumentative, intolerant, and prejudice. See, if you try to discuss something with them, and I have, some of them are preachers. They have a verse. They have a scripture. It's always by private interpretation, and it's offered as proof for any discussion. I have found them to be closed-minded. Their minds are like concrete, thoroughly mixed, and well set. Others, they look at probably you and I, they would look at us as, well, y'all are closed-minded. We're blind. We're in darkness. We're foolish. We're immature. They believe themselves to be the guides. They believe that they're lights. They believe that they're a corrector of all others. They're self-anointed teachers who by some authority, they have Uh, they are authorized to tell others with whom they don't agree, you are going to hell. I can't tell you how many times I've heard that in my lifetime. To them, others have opinions. They have facts. (laughs) And they believe in the volume of their arguments. They believe the volume, the louder they get, that determines truth. In other words, if I can shout you down, I win. This spirit creates tribes of different Christian groups where some are approved, others are condemned. Verse 21 to 29, God's viewpoint of the Jew. We've heard all about the Jew and his claims. Well, God just happens to have some counterclaims. So, here's some revealing questions given to the teachers of the law. Well, do you teach yourself? Teaching increases responsibility. I always have to look in the mirror for myself. Teaching requires and increases responsibility. Well, God says, do you steal? That's the counterclaim of them being honest. God says, do you commit adultery? Counterclaim of their purity. Do you rob temples? God's counterclaim of them claiming sanctity. Do you dishonor God? God's counterclaim of honor. Well, if you look at this closely, The grand jury convenes. We've got the Jew's view of himself. It's all been explained. Witnesses have been interviewed. Evidence has been entered into the record. We've heard claims. We've heard God's counterclaims. The defendant, the Jew, his defense has been debated. God's counterclaims and summary is then presented to the jury. The jury meets. The jury deliberates, and a unanimous decision is reached. An indictment is declared, and the defendant, the Jew, is charged. The indictment is verses 24 to 29. As to probable cause, count one. The name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. That's quite an indictment. Verse 24. By your actions, by your deeds, the words that you speak, the very name of God was in reproach among the Gentiles because of the sins of the Jew. Probable cause. Count two. They who presented themselves as instructors of the law, well, they didn't even keep the law themselves. Probable cause. Count three. The seal of God, which to the Jew was circumcision in the flesh, is nullified by the Jews' lawlessness. Verses 25 to 28. Circumcision was of the foreskin and of the flesh. It was a religious rite of the Jews. It was a seal, though, of the covenant made with Abraham. What did it speak of spiritually? It spoke spiritually of putting off the filth of the flesh. So the law of circumcision is deliberated. What does God have to say? Circumcision is of value for the Jew, but only if he practices the law. Verse 25. If the Jew is a transgressor of the law, his circumcision becomes uncircumcision. Verse 25. The uncircumcised who keep the law, that would be Gentiles, will judge the circumcised who are transgressors of the law, verse 27. So, the defendant, the Jew, pleads. And the last vestige of hope is exhausted and eradicated for the Jew. See, the Jew claims, you can't judge me. Why not? Oh, you can't judge me because I had been circumcised. What would be the application today? What would be the application today? See, to the Christian, one might go, I'll just use this as an example, one might go to First Church. I don't know where First Church is. It's just a good name for a church. They likely had a salvation experience. Maybe they were water baptized in 92 degree water. I don't know. Maybe they speak in tongues. Maybe they've been known to lay on hands on the sick. They love to tithe. They might even use their vacation to go on a mission trip. In some cases, they might be pastor of a mega church and they might even have a large TV following. But, God is looking, verse 29, for what? The circumcision... Of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter I don't know how any more greater truth could be spoken God is looking for the circumcision of the heart by the spirit and not by the letter God accepts one's Jewish Jewishness not merely on the basis he's been circumcised because that's outward in the flesh but he who is a Jew inwardly. So stated in verse 28 and 29. So the Jew had a symbol. What was the symbol? Circumcision. But they lost the reality of it. Do you think Christians have any symbols today? Yeah. The symbol for the Christian is the cross. Oh, they wear it with pride. They hang it in their homes. Why, sometimes you can drive down the street and see it hanging on the, somebody's rearview mirror. Some athletes put it on display all the, all the while they're drunk at a bar or they go home and beat the woman they're living with. So many have lost the reality of the symbol. Let me ask you this, and I'm not referencing COTR. I, I want to point out a universal problem that is occurring. Why have so many Christian churches within the past 25 years removed the cross? Yeah, yeah. Why? It is the first sign to the world that a church preaches multiculturalism. And in essence, if you preach multiculturalism, one is denying that there's one way, one truth, and one life. Listen, the church can't have it both ways, regardless of all the humanistic arguments that can be made. It's not a question of love. It's not a question of acceptance. It's a question of, are we going to honor the cross? Or are we ashamed of the cross? Paul's exact words in chapter 1, verse 16. He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. What is the gospel if it's not the cross? It is the power of God. I'm of the persuasion the cross needs to be on display before the world. You see, the cross is a more significant symbol to the world than any church building. They can identify with the cross. They may not ever identify with a church building. Could you imagine removing all the crosses in our cemeteries? Would anybody have anything to say about that? How do you think we would feel if Congress introduced a bill? Said we're going to remove all crosses at Arlington National Cemetery. How many is it going to be for that? How about the cemetery at Normandy, Normandy Beach? Every grave is marked with a cross or the Star of David. In many cathedrals throughout Europe, I've been to a few, not as many as my wife, but still been through a few. And the buildings. Perhaps are near empty, they are, but the cross still stands in those churches as a beacon, you are welcome. It's an invitation that offers hope, a place of peace, and where one can go in and pray. Next question: Who is a Jew? to judge answers. One who not only has the seal of Abraham in the flesh, but one who has the faith of Abraham, which is circumcision of the heart. So the real Jew does not live by the letter of the law. He receives the work of the Spirit by the faith of Abraham. You remember that response in Acts 7 that Stephen made to a similar audience before he died. You men, you Jews, are stiff-necked. You are uncircumcised in heart, and your ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Acts 7.51 So, there's an indictment, there's a trial, and there's been proof of guilt to the Jews. And there's no possibility of appeal. So, one last reminder. What the Messiah himself said to this same audience of Jews. You are of your father, the devil. Mm -hmm. And you want to do the desires of your father. John 8, 44. So I guess you wonder what the verdict is. And what the punishment phase is. Well, that's chapter 3 and we're not going there tonight. (laughs) Let's have a prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, I feel a war raging in my heart.